On your turning there, let me say it's great to be back in the pulpit after a few weeks away. Uh, I missed our times together in God's Word, and I'm excited to uh, return to our series in the Ten Commandments. This morning, we are looking at the Sixth Commandment, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. So let's listen closely to the Word of God that we might live. Verse 17, you shall not murder. Choose life. That's how Moses wraps up his final address in the book of Deuteronomy as he speaks to the people of Israel on the plains of Moab. Choose life. I have set before you life and death Blessings and cursings choose life. At the ripe old age of 120 years, this is Moses' final word to Israel, reminding them of who God is. Choose life for he is your life. It's important for us to keep that in mind as we consider the sixth commandment, which has to do with matters of life and death. Think about it. The God who is life itself. The God who created all things and gives life to all mankind. The God who came in the person of Jesus Christ to lay down his life to give life to us. The God who brought life and immortality to light is the same God who commands us to choose life by clinging to him, by holding fast to him, and by being a people who honor and preserve and protect life. The sixth commandment forbids everything leading to death, everything conducive to death, from homicide in the heart to murder with our mouths to any unlawful form of taking life. Positively, it requires us to protect life by loving our neighbor and speaking well of them and protecting our own and their own life. And ultimately, ultimately, this commandment drives us to Jesus, who is our life, to choose him is to choose life. To hold fast to him is to hold fast to life. So the sixth commandment sets life and death before us and commands us and calls us to choose life. Ultimately, in the final analysis, this is where the commandment leads us, to Christ, who is our life. And so I want us to consider the sixth commandment in in three parts, what the commandment forbids, what it requires, and what it's ultimately about. Let's think first of all about what it forbids. The sixth commandment is remarkably brief, isn't it? Just four words in English, you shall not murder. It's even more brief in Hebrew. It's just two words, no murder. But the implications of these two words are exceedingly vast. They are expansive, as we've seen with 
all of the commandments. And as our confession of faith, I think, so helpfully indicated, these words are not limited to physical acts, but extend to speech and the inner dynamics of the human heart. But before we go any further with that, I think it's worth pausing for a moment and and asking, have, have you ever asked yourself the question, why is murder wrong? Ever thought about that? Why is murder wrong? The sixth commandment is probably the only commandment virtually everyone still seems to accept today. I don't see anybody out there campaigning for the legalization of murder. I don't see anyone promoting it as a positive thing, and that's a that's a good thing. Even while there are blatant violations of the commandment in our culture, nevertheless, most people today still think murder is wrong. But why? Why is murder wrong? If you asked most people today, you'd get one of two responses. One is similar to the answer that we gave when when we're kids and we didn't really have a reason. Why did you do this? Because. Okay, because why? Just because. (laughs) Some other folks might expand on that a little bit and give a pragmatic reason say something like well if we're going to flourish as a society we can't go around shooting each other we can't go around killing one another but that doesn't really give a firm foundation for why murder is wrong does it it's not really solid ground for saying murder is wrong after all what if someone decides that we can function and flourish better as a society with some people dead. And so that leads us to ask another question. Who gets to decide? Who gets to decide whether your life has dignity and is actually worth protecting? See, for Christians, the reason that unjust murder is wrong is fundamentally because it is an assault on the image of of God. In other words, it is an assault on God himself. Everything we do to other people, we do to God in effigy. This is what James is getting at in James chapter 3 when he talks about sins of speech. He says we, we bless the Lord with our mouth and then we, we turn and we curse people who are made in God's own image and likeness. See, no matter a person's race, ethnicity, health or disabilities, age or infirmities, every person has inherent worth and dignity because he or she is made in the image of God. So to kill an innocent person is not only an act of murder, it's an act of blasphemy. Which is why God instituted the death penalty for murder in Genesis chapter 9. After the flood, God told Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, so purpose statement, for God made man in his own image. So we should recognize the Bible does not prohibit capital punishment in the case of murder, but specifically authorizes it. So when we turn to Romans chapter 13, Paul says that the civil magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath 
on evildoers. In other words, there are certain limited situations where the taking of life can and ought to occur without breaching the sixth commandment. But, but these cases are extremely limited by scripture, which is far less permissive in the use of deadly force than our culture tends to be. It's an important thing to say, I think, that scripture is far less permissive in the use of deadly force than our culture tends to be. As a rule, the assumption of scripture is that the taking of human life is a divine prerogative that is always wrong for human beings to exercise except in matters of public justice, lawful war, and necessary self-defense, as the larger catechism so helpfully puts it. In contrast to the trigger-happy human heart, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Scriptures repeat that again and again and again, don't they? God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As we saw in our New Testament reading from Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes straight to the heart when he interprets the sixth commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. Just listen again to Matthew 5 verses 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is one of those commandments where I think we often tend to think we're doing okay until we hear what Jesus has to say. We think this is one that we can check off. I haven't. I haven't gunned anybody down. I haven't, I haven't killed anybody until we hear Jesus' explanation of the true meaning of the sixth commandment. When Jesus explains the command, he does not limit its meaning to the outward act of murder, but extends it to the inner reality from which murderous acts spring. He focuses on what comes out of the heart and then comes out of the mouth. Jesus is teaching we could say focuses on the homicide of the heart and the murder in the mouth. He wants us to understand that the sixth commandment forbids how we so often think and feel and speak and act towards one another. You don't, you don't have to shoot someone or get an abortion to break the sixth commandment. If you hate someone in your heart or you insult them with your words, Jesus says you are already in violation of this command. Just think for a minute about how we, how we harm, how we uh, do damage with our words for a minute. You know, the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is just a farce, isn't it? It's totally bogus. It's a lie. We, we can do real damage with the words that we speak. Just think about the basic Christian conviction 
that words are really powerful. The Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth and upholds the universe by the word of his power. And we might say, okay, well, I'm not God. I I can't tell the sun to shine. True enough, but you are made in his image and likeness and your words have creative and destructive power. Your words can give life and your words can destroy I don't think we fully appreciate all the time how powerful and potentially uh, destructive our, our words can be. What we say, what we say really matters. Jesus says that every careless word that we speak will be liable to judgment. But that every careless word, every word we blurted out, our words are far more important, far more powerful than we realize. So what we say cannot be trivialized. Proverbs says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. It describes the mouth of the wicked as an open grave and a scorching fire, an open door to death and a fire that brings destruction. By the mouth of the wicked, a city is demolished. Proverbs 11 verse 1. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. Proverbs 25, 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Proverbs 12, 18. I wonder if you've ever felt that. One whose words are like a sword thrust into your heart. Have you ever been the one bearing the sword? Brothers and sisters, the sixth commandment not only forbids the kind of killings that make headline news, it also forbids things like sinful anger. A number of years ago, the late David Powelson wrote a book called, titled Good and Angry, a terrific book on our problem with anger. One of the chapters in that book is, is titled, Do You Have a Serious Problem with anger. It's a brilliant chapter, and I can summarize all of it for you because the chapter is only one word long. <laughs> Do you have a serious problem with anger? The entire chapter, yes. That's all it says. Pallison's making the simple point that all of us have an anger problem. Anger can dominate our lives churning beneath the surface and breaking out at the slightest provocation. It can be the smallest thing. Someone cutting us off on the road. Something our our spouse says to us. Children's accident or their constant questioning, stress at work. It can be all manner of things. Some of the angriest people would be shocked to be told, They're angry even though they live in the continuous violation of this commandment. Jesus' teaching shows us we all have a sixth commandment problem. We're all liable to judgment uh, for the resentments we harbor. 
the ill we've wished on others, the hatred we've felt, the words we've used like swords and spears and sharp arrows to harm other people, the destructive words we've, we've tweeted and sent out in text messages. Jesus takes us here, friends. And as we're going to see, he takes us here ultimately to drive us to himself. But before, before we turn to what the sixth commandment requires and where it's ultimately leading us, I think we should reflect for a few minutes on three contemporary cultural issues that the sixth commandment speaks directly to. You might say three acts forbidden by the sixth commandment. The first is suicide. There is almost no topic more painful than suicide for those who have experienced it among family or who have a loved one who has attempted it. This is sadly becoming a more common issue and occurrence for a number of reasons in our society today. In fact, in recent years, suicide has become one of the leading causes of death among adolescents in the United States. And we should ask, what does the Sixth Commandment say about this issue? One of the things we need to say is, as an expression of God's will, it forbids taking our own life because self-murder is still murder. It says it's a sin. Not, not, not an unforgivable sin, but sin. Now, I want, I want to be clear. I'm not talking at this point about how we ought to speak to somebody who is in the midst of struggling with suicidal thoughts. I'm, I'm reminding us simply of God's revealed will for our lives. And, and that's something we all need to remember because we are living in a society that is teaching people that we have the right to take our own life when we decide it is not worth living any longer. Think about the typical response when a famous celebrity or athlete uh, tragically commits suicide. People are understandably sad about such an untimely death, and you've got to tune out lots of unhelpful things that are said for sure. But I think if you reflect upon it, you'll agree with me that one of the things that's often missing by omission, right, one of the recurring themes is any talk about a lack of responsibility. One of the things you'll never hear is, well, you'll hear the person, should, uh, the person uh, they had their own baggage, they were fighting their own personal demons, and yes, all of that's true, but you'll, you'll never hear, you know what, they shouldn't have done that. They had so much to live for, they shouldn't have done that. But the sixth commandment says self-murder is, is wrong. God cares about our life even when we don't. Lovingly expressed, the sixth commandment says to the person struggling with suicidal thoughts that your life is precious to God. Even if you've concluded that it's pointless. Your life is precious in his sight. The second issue 
this commandment speaks to, and we're just skimming the surface here, I recognize, but the second issue is abortion. Proverbs 139 verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And the psalmist there is reflecting upon prenatal life, upon life in the mother's womb. The Lord fashioned him while he was still in her womb. And connect that with a case law that we find in Exodus chapter 21, which has to do with the injuring of a woman and a woman's baby while the baby is still within her womb. And the law says that there were punishments for doing so because that life was considered life. And this has been the church's witness throughout history. For example, the Didache, an early Christian document, a Christian manual of sorts, says, this is a quote, you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. Some translations translate that as expose a child because the practice in the Greco-Roman world was often after an infant was born to, to put it outside in the trash heap, exposing it to the elements. And so these two practices were common in the ancient world, but the early church, reflecting God's will in the sixth commandment, said that those vulnerable children were deserving of protection and care. And that's why many Christians took those children left to die in a trash heap into their own homes and raised them as their own. Going back to Exodus chapter 21 for a minute, commenting on that passage, John Calvin wrote these words. Think about this. This was 500 years ago, roughly. For the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. That's Calvin in the 16th century. Life begins at conception. Friends, this is not a political argument. It is a theological and biological reality. Think about the psalmist's words again. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. It wasn't a mere lump of cells the Lord fashioned. It was him. It was a person. And any book on embryology confirms that life for each of us traces back to the zygote, to the moment of conception. We've all been formed from that original life, which was still us. To end that life is to end a person, to destroy a person. And the only way to think that ending life in the womb is appropriate is to think that personhood begins at some other point than the start of biological life. So for, this is an extreme example, but it's an example that is setting a precedent. The teaching of Peter Singer, uh, someone from Princeton, who grounds personhood, and therefore a right to life, 
to personal agency and a sort of nebulous understanding of quality of life. And so at one point, Peter Singer will go so far as to say that a pig has more of a right to life than a fetus in a mother's womb. A right to life depends on you being able to make choices for yourself and the quality of your life. And you can see right away that that not only has consequences for how we think about the beginning of life, but consequences for how we think about the end of life. And that takes us to the third contemporary issue that the Sixth Commandment speaks to, euthanasia. There is an important distinction we need to maintain between the termination of treatment on the one hand and the termination of life on the other. For example, someone who has lived a long life and foregoes a treatment plan that may add a few days or perhaps a few weeks to life or someone who's been battling a disease and says, I'm done with treatment at this point is not the same thing as someone who takes some pills to end their own life. But there are laws making speedy headway throughout the Western world, uh, making euthanasia not only more accessible, but normalized. And as Christians, we need to maintain that every human life is precious. Unborn life is precious. Precious. People with, the life of people with special needs is precious. Our, the life of our aging parents is precious. They're all image bearers. All of life, from womb to tomb, matters to God. So let's turn to what is required by the Sixth Commandment. Now, the Sixth Commandment, in a nutshell, requires everything tending to life. <laughs> I encourage you this afternoon to take a look at the larger catechism question and answer 135 for a a comprehensive description of what this commandment entails. It, It tells us that our thoughts and words and actions must be directed to life. So there's a lot we could say about what this commandment requires Therefore, all I want to do is focus us on where Jesus takes us in Matthew chapter 5. He connects it, the sixth commandment, to dealing with conflict in our relationships with one another. Notice how he answers the question in Matthew 5, verses 23 through 26. After warning his hearers about the homicide of the heart... And murder of the mouth, he concludes, so, okay, here's the positive call of this commandment. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. See, here we recognize that the sixth commandment not only forbids homicide in the heart and murder in the mouth, it positively requires us to be peacemakers 
It requires us to be at peace with others insofar as it depends upon us. You know, we, we, we understand, I hope, that there will be times and relationships in our lives where sadly peace is not possible. Right? So this is not a commandment that's used to strong-arm people into some semblance of peace. Teaching of Scripture, insofar as it depends upon you, pursue people whenever you're aware that they have something against you. So just stop and think with me about applying that to your own relationships for a moment. Are you aware of anyone who has something against you, rightly or wrongly? Are you willing to go? Are you willing to go to them? Will you make it a priority to resolve the matter insofar as it depends upon you? Jesus says... This takes precedence over over liturgical worship. Leave your offering on the altar and go. It's hard to think of a way to emphasize the importance more than that. We are called by the sixth commandment to be peacemakers because it is a fundamental part of the life God has called us to in Jesus Christ. Think about it for a minute. Enmity and strife. Come from what? Enmity and strife are the result of sin. Now don't make the foolish, uh, foolhardy mistake of thinking that means therefore when, it, when there's a conflict that everybody's equally responsible and equally guilty. That's not what is being said. But enmity and strife always are the result of sin. And Jesus came to rescue us from sin, to give us peace with God and peace with each other. That means that the application of his redeeming work involves the hard work on our part of dealing with our strifes. We live in a world full of conflict and unspoken resentments, don't we? There are, there are divisions that affect us all. And even behind some of the seemingly most stable and healthy relationships, sometimes there are hidden tensions that produce deep-seated anger and bitterness and resentment corrupting the relationship. And these tensions should not be ignored. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Yes, love covers over a multitude of sin. Yes, it is the glory of a man to cover over an offense. But we should run to people when we know that peace is disturbed by conflict. We need to pursue peace. It is a gospel issue, brothers and sisters. And here's the good news in the light of this challenge. The good news is that true peace is possible in Jesus Christ. True peace is possible because Christ himself is our peace. You see, true peace is not merely a hopeful wish. True peace is a person. 
It sounds strange to put it that way, but that's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2.14. Speaking of Jesus, he says, he himself is our peace. So what's, what's our hope for peace? It's not pie in the sky. It's not wishful thinking. It's a person who died and rose again to bring peace. Paul claims that Jesus is our peace. That claim, it comes in the context of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, where he's talking about uh, the, the past separation of the Gentiles from God and, and God's people and their present nearness and oneness in Christ. He says he has created in, in himself one new man by making peace by the blood of the cross. There's so much hope to be found in these words in the midst of all of our divisions. The church of Jesus Christ is a community of peace brought near to God and to one another by the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 2.16 The work of Jesus secures peace. He is our peace. It has already objectively been obtained by the shedding of his blood. That's what it means for him to be our peace. He's the one who has already accomplished, as Paul puts it, the reconciliation of all things. Colossians 1.20 That's crucial for us to understand in our pursuits of peace. After all, it takes, it takes power, power that frankly we don't have to pursue peace in our relationships. Jesus has brought us peace. He's brought us life. Keeping the sixth commandment by giving up his own life. We've been reconciled to God by the death of his son. We have peace with God through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is an already accomplished reality and it has to be applied in the lives of God's people by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is something that we need to remember, brothers and sisters, as we face divisions and conflicts that arise in our families and, and in our church. We need to remember the power is from God through Jesus who is our peace because the truth is the truth is that forgiveness and reconciliation is really really hard in actual experience isn't it it's really really hard for people who believe this stuff and who belong to Jesus Christ some of the wounds that we have received and some of the wounds that we have inflicted are just too deep to heal if it weren't for the gospel so let me ask you as we turn to the final thing here briefly consider with me for a moment the meaning of life meaning of life as we think about the sixth commandment that has to do with life and death ask yourself the fundamental question what is the meaning of life in the deepest possible sense of the word? What is life? Initially, my mind goes back to when the world was new. And you think, think about the world that God made, the sky full of birds, 
The water is filled with fish swimming around in the waters. The land full of creatures roaming the earth. A winding river going through a lush garden, separating out into four separate headwaters, into lands where gold and bdellium and onyx are found. And right in the center of that garden, the tree of life, a symbol to Adam and Eve of the life that God intends for his people to enjoy. But go back even further. Before the sun was shining, where does it all come from? It comes from him. Right? All this is from God, the creator of all things, the one who is life itself, the Lord of all living things. We need to understand this. Life is a person. Just as we were saying about peace a moment ago, life is a person. Life is not an abstract thing. Life is not an energy or an impersonal force. Life is a person. As Moses concludes in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 20, this is where the whole book of Deuteronomy is taking us. He is your life. So don't get distracted. We need to keep this in mind if we're going to understand what the sixth commandment ultimately requires. Don't forget Jesus' words in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me. So that you may have life. So I wonder, friend, where are you looking for life? Are you searching for life in things that will ultimately leave you dead? It's easy to do that. It is easy to go through life avoiding the one, ignoring the one, remaining indifferent to the one who is life itself. Don't kill yourself by refusing to come to Jesus. All who hate him love death. That's what the book of Proverbs says about the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. All who hate the wisdom of God love death. You see, God's positive and overarching purpose is not only to create a thriving place full of life, full of people who reflect his image. His purpose is for us to enjoy his son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So have you come to him? Have you come to him to find true life and peace that lasts. But set before you today, as Moses puts it, set before you today are life and death. Choose life. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our life. Let's pray together.
Lord our God, we thank you for this commandment, which once again shows us how we have fallen short of your glory, how we have turned deliberately away from your will for our lives, and we have promoted things that lead to death. We thank you as well that in your grace this commandment uh, shows us how to live as followers of Jesus, honoring and preserving life. And right now we are most grateful of all for the way this commandment takes us to the Lord Jesus Christ who is our life. I pray that each one of us by faith would hold fast to him and experience and know the life and peace that comes to us in the gospel. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.